Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to Harry Lambert and George Eaton about polls which made very happy reading for the SNP, but very bad reading for Labour and the Lib Dems. Then I'll be talking to Barbara Speed and Ian Steadman about the measles outbreak in the US and whether something similar could happen in the UK. Finally, I talked to John Ellidge and Caroline Crampton about the problem of housing, how do we get more, and how do we stop the people who already have some feeling bad about that. The Tory peer Lord Ashcroft released a selected snapshot of polls looking at very bad for Labour in Scotland, which would reveal if a uniform swing um, followed them, that the SNP would end up with more than 50 seats. I'm joined by our polling expert, Harry Lambert, and our political editor, George Eaton, to discuss them. So first of all, Harry, just um, that whether it wasn't an amazing summary by me, give me a little snapshot of what Ashcroft found. Well, so Ashcroft has polled 16 of Scotland's 59 seats, so that's about a quarter, and he's actually put the SNP in front of 15 of those seats. Um, and if we take the national swing that that implies across Scotland, that would mean that the SNP end up with around 56 seats. Now, we shouldn't be too precise here, but if we look at other national polls that have been done in Scotland, they all imply that the SNP would run around 50 seats. And that's a huge change from 2010 when they won just six. So we should offer the caveat that he surveyed mostly yes-supporting areas, plus uh, also Danny Alexander, the Lib Dem Chief Secretary to the Treasury seat, and Gordon, which is the constituency that Alex Salmond is running in. And it was bad news, wasn't it, George, for the two Alexanders, Douglas and Danny? Yes, it was. I mean, in particular for Danny. I mean, Danny is 29 points behind in his seat. I don't think he's, I don't think he's going to come back from that. Um, Douglas Alexander, so Shadow Foreign Secretary, Chair of... Labour's general election campaign, a man with already quite a lot on his plate, now faces a similar battle to keep his seat. I think he's got a better chance. Um, his um, the SNP have a single-figure lead in his seat. Uh, several Labour MPs told me <coughs> yesterday that they thought he could pull it back. But um, you know, for Labour, this has dealt a real blow to their morale because until this poll, they were they were able to console themselves with the fact that. Surely the SNP won't pick up as many as, as, as the poll suggests. And, and as Harry's explained, they're still unlikely to, to achieve a uniform swing. But it's clear that this is a real political earthquake now. And now we have the strange situation, don't we, Harry, where we're waiting to see how, many, how much of that is post-referendum surge, how solid that SNP 
voters. And the same thing is happening on the other side of the political spectrum with UKIP, who are on regularly, what, 16, 17 points. Mm-hmm. How many of those voters are going back to the Tories? How many of them were Tories to start with? Just before I talk about UKIP, I think the really interesting thing with the SNP in Scotland is that all of that change, as you said, happened after the referendum. And it's actually been very stable for about four months now. The SNP has been around 40, 45%, even 50 in national polls. Just on UKIP, um, as you say, most of those voters are coming from the Tory party, Tory voters from 2010. But if we track those voters back further back in time, 2005 and even as far back as 1997 and 1992, quite a lot of the current UKIP voter uh, it, it comes from a Labour background. They voted for Blair in 1997. They even quite a few of them voted for Kinnock in 1992. So it's not just a Tory problem. Are you talking then about what they kind of get called the C2s, people in skilled working class occupations, that old designation? Yeah, those are the other key component of UKIP support. They've gone from about 2-3% supporting them in 2010 to up to around 15-20%. That's a key constituency for the Labour Party, which they're losing. So the Ashcroft polls, George, made it look as if really the only possible arrangement that you could ever get over a line of 326 people in the Commons would be a Labour-SNP deal. However, you've written your column this week about the prospects of a Lib-Lab coalition, which, if there is a slightly smaller SNP surge, is, is on the cards. What do both the SNP and the Lib Dems want? What are their red lines in negotiating with Labour? Mm, so for the SNP, their priorities would be uh, the strapping of Trident, the nuclear weapon system, um, an end to austerity, which would mean obviously fewer fewer cap, fewer cuts to public services, and then uh, much greater devolution to Scotland. Um, for the Lib Dems, I mean, their priorities would be uh, a further increase in their personal tax allowance to £12,500, um, a new focus on, on mental health, uh, protecting education spending, and then their traditional causes, so civil liberties and, and the environment. And what this new study from, from the Fabians and, and the Centre Forum shows is that there is a huge degree of policy overlap between the parties that's often unacknowledged because they've really been at each other's throats over the last uh, five years. So you know, they both support a mantra tax, they both support borrowing to invest in infrastructure, they both support greater oversight of free schools and academies. Lords reform, votes Lords reform, yes. The other thing is when you read off that list and I and I hear the things that you're talking about, I think I can imagine Labour signing up to all those Liberal Democrat things. Who is going to turn down a greater focus on mental health? Right. It's, yes. it's a, the spending commitment is not massive. What SNP want, scrapping of Trident starting off, that's huge. That's a huge number of defence jobs. That's going to be a real problem for Labour, let alone end to austerity. I mean, it, it depends, but I suppose it was well, well, that's an end to austerity in Scotland or an end to yes. austerity across the UK. It makes the sum slightly different. But... Can you ever see Labour signing up to that programme? No, I mean, and the question is uh, whether the SNP would be prepared to compromise. Now, the fear that Labour has is that the SNP is simply setting impossible conditions so that they can then say to their activists, look, we tried to make it work with Labour, it didn't work, and then they'll have an excuse for when the Tories take power because the belief of Labour is that ultimately what the SNP wants, because it's in its political interest, is for the Conservatives to be in power at Westminster, to hold an EU referendum in which... The UK leaves, uh, but Scotland votes to stay in. The SNP will use that as justification for another referendum on independence. So the you can you can see how that scenario plays out for them much better than a partnership with Labour. But it also, I mean, there's a huge incentive for Ed Miliband in, to agree to concessions in coalition negotiations, presumably because he wouldn't survive if 
the Labour Party doesn't end up, if he doesn't end up as Prime Minister. Those are his two options in yes. May, right? Prime Minister or bust. Absolutely. So Shadow Cabinet Minister said to me this week about the Lib Dems, look, of course we've we've attacked them, but my bottom line is you do whatever's necessary to make Ed Miliband Prime Minister in those circumstances. Of course, there are others in the party, including some in the Shadow Cabinet, who feel very differently and who, who still would go nowhere near the Lib Dems. We saw that in 2010. Um, and you can quickly see how uh, Labour could become quite badly split on this question. Uh, Len McCluskey, of course, the head of Unite, has said, you know, no coalition, no deal with the Lib Dems under any circumstances. And he's threatened to cut funding or even support disaffiliation if that takes place. So um, it would be uh, it would be very messy for Ed Miliband in those circumstances. I think what we've, the one conclusion we've come to is that the next uh, what happens after the next election is going to be very, very messy. Very good for journalists, but very messy. Harry, just before we finish, I want to ask you about another poll. Um, Servation had Nick Clegg looking at... Mm-hmm. Uh, who you regarded as what a ten thousand majority in Sheffield Hallam? You'd have thought that was a safe seat for a Lib Dem. No, no, no chance. And Nick Clegg won over fifty percent of the vote in Sheffield Hallam in twenty ten, and the Labour Party actually came third. But a new poll today suggests the Labour Party is now ten eleven points ahead in the seat. That follows a poll from Ashcroft in November, which showed Clegg with a very slender lead. And at first glance, there doesn't seem to be anything about the Salvation poll, which is particularly out of line with what Ashcroft said in November. It's just that Labour's support has ticked up really across the age ranges, especially among older voters. This isn't actually, doesn't seem, about younger voters suddenly swinging against Clegg. They're already quite anti the Lib Dem leader. So it, it doesn't bode particularly well for the Deputy Prime Minister. He's dismissed the poll. We know they have internal polling, which may say something different, but uh, publicly it doesn't seem like it's going well for him. Doesn't seem like it's going well for anybody, I think that's the thing. But on that note, I'll say thank you very much to Harry and George. America is in the grip of several measles outbreaks, which have been traced back to Disneyland. I'm joined by our science correspondent in Stedman and Barbara Speed, who is a surprising expert on anti- the anti-vax movement, to talk a little bit about why that might have happened and what the risks are to Europe and the UK. First of all, Ian, I'm going to start off with you. Tell me basic facts about measles. Basic facts about measles uh, is very, very infectious. It's a viral disease. Um, and until um, the year 2000, well, actually after the year 2000, rather, it had been declared eliminated in the United States, which is why it's very surprising that we are seeing huge outbreaks. Uh, at the moment, there are in January alone, 102 people have been diagnosed with measles so far, as I say, all traced back to Disneyland in California. And the uh, the fingers are being pointed at people who uh, parents who have refused to have their kids have vaccinations. So we talk about this concept when it comes to viruses about herd immunity. You have to have yes. a certain level of the population because some people can't get vaccines. Some people are immune compromised. Yep. Some people are simply too young. You have to wait. Uh, if you're allergic to eggs, you can't because they use uh, egg yolk or egg white, I think, one of, one of the two in making vaccinations. So it's an inevitable um, social issue yeah. because you're, you, in those cases, people have to rely on everyone else. Barbara, let's compare the situation with the UK. What, what is the situation with measles here? Um, we actually have a much better situation here in that um, our immunisation levels are relatively high, but that doesn't mean that we don't have the same social problem of especially parents um, being quite cautious sometimes about getting their children immunised. And there's been some quite public cases with, say, Steiner schools, um, which kind of endorse more natural 
methods of healthcare, which can include not having your children vaccinated. Um, but beyond that, there are also other movements which all come under this umbrella of sort of more natural healthcare or the idea that having fevers is in some way healthy for your children. Um, and also other people turn against vaccination when a child is vaccine damaged or they think a child has been vaccine damaged. So you bring up vaccine damage. That I mean, I guess inevitably at this point we have to talk about Andrew Wakefield, formerly Dr. Andrew Wakefield, yes. I think, until he was... Um, dismissed from that uh, title um, whose very controversial Lancet study suggested there was a link between um, autism uh, mm. and, and vaccinations um, Ian, what, how, first of all how did that study get published? Because I understand there were lots of problems with it in terms oh, of Oh, huge the... problems. I mean it was a very it was a, 1998 I believe it was published where um, he found the parents of several children with autism or autistic uh, like traits and it was only about, I think it was six kids. It was a very, kids. Small, was a very small sample. And they, were, and it was pretty much just pointing out that these kids all started displaying, uh, these, these, these traits around the time they got their first dose of the MMR vaccine, which is the, the one that really has taken a hit here. And that covers measles, mumps and rubella. Um, and immediately, immediately there was pushback on that study because it was very obviously not very rigorous. Um, it was debunked. It's been debunked repeatedly again and again. He's been struck off the me- medical register for it. But the damage from that study has been immense because it was picked up by the media, uh, who made it as, into a sensationalist health scare, really. Well, you're probably too young to remember this, but I remember a huge controversy about, um, whether or not the Leo Blair, Tony Blair's youngest child, I would get the, remember that. <laughs> okay, would get the MMR vaccine. And then there was a lot of suggestions after that about, and this became a big question for, for doctors, about whether or not you should offer single measles, mumps and rubella's vaccine. Because yes. people didn't think that those were, they thought it was somewhere as the magical Ironically enough, the few side effects that you do get from uh, vaccines which tend to be stuff like you might get a fever or a rash or something like that but very very mild um, those risks increase when you take the MMR vaccines separately rather than all together um, there's it, it was just the damage that that study and the, the full that um, is, is quite measurable if you look at the vaccination rates across the UK um, two years ago in Swansea there was a massive outbreak of measles where over a thousand people were infected because um, that it was the generation of teenagers who as children had not been vaccinated or well you have to take the MMR vaccine in two doses the first before your second birthday the second before your fifth birthday and a lot of parents had done the first but then decided not to take the second so they weren't fully immunized either um and you had scenes of queues of uh you know hundreds of teenagers being taken to hospitals and stuff and, and made to get this second dose of the vaccine because they hadn't had it and parents were something like oh wait measles is a thing it is a real disease yeah. um barbara i'm interested because to somebody from a you know who's has an understanding of the scientific literature which i guess i do to some extent this seems to be a total no-brainer. The risks, um, even the acknowledged risks, there there, ha- there are cases of people being vaccine damaged. They are vanishingly rare. Whereas measles is an incredibly serious illness. I've seen people passing around. Roald Dahl's daughter Olivia um, died of encephalitis, inflammation of the brain after measles, which is one of the few things when people say, "Oh, these you know these things aren't so bad." Um, rubella german measles might not be that bad in adults, but if you infect a pregnant woman, then it leads to incredibly serious birth deformities. So all of this sounds like vaccines, the best medical, you know, along with antibiotics, one of the greatest medical discoveries of the 20th century. What is what are the social reasons that lead people to be against them? Um, I think there's a couple of issues. One of them is that 
it's vaccination with children is quite interesting because you're making a medical decision for someone that isn't you. And I think that actually parents take that responsibility very, very seriously. And so they don't just take it as read. I think even parents who do vaccinate, the vast majority, probably do put in some research just to figure out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Like is the, because there's quite a substantial calendar of vaccinations that your children have when they're still extremely young. Um, and I think it's completely natural to think I'm going to check this out for myself. Like obviously everyone else is doing it, but as we all know, that doesn't mean you should automatically do it yourself um so i think the parents do want to know a lot of information and i think there is occasionally a problem with healthcare professionals because they to them it's so so obvious that this is what you do that they might be slightly um what's the word kind of offhand about parents concerns or say just trust me i know or i mean they're quite unwilling for example to refer parents to the actual medical literature because they may not understand the conclusions or they may take um probabilities the wrong way um so i think it is quite important to respect the concerns of parents and to deal with them in a quite mature way as opposed to just acting like parents are being mad or that's interesting crazy. i just read a piece by the new scientist which said exactly that really that that kind of screaming at people that mm. only a stupid person wouldn't understand this yeah. is actually deeply counterproductive the other point i want to pick up with you in is this interesting idea about whether or not it's a it's a right or left-wing ideological yeah. point so there's been a lot of chat about the fact that Rand paul who's um, a republican chris christie who's the you know, relatively left wing for a Republican <laughs> governor of yeah. New Jersey has often been talked about as a 2016 presidential candidate have um, have made some really wild and unfortunate statements. Yeah, but it rec- but the last couple of days they've been rowing back on those. They've been like saying, "Go get your kids vaccinated." Like Bobby Jindal has been saying that as well um, because they've they've realised that for for many years it's been safe to. Um, treat vaccinations as part of the larger american conversation about what the government's allowed to tell you to do with your body and and your family sort of libertarian kind yeah. of you can't take my guns away yeah exactly and and the great thing about herd immunity is that um with something like measles you need 90 to 95 percent ish it depends on the community you're in um of people vaccinated for the other remaining unvaccinated people to not get it so for many years uh anti-vaccination activists have been such a tiny minority that really the herd immunity has been good enough to still work that and what that means that politicians can safely kind of be like oh yeah you guys like you have a point yeah they become another political demographic to appeal to on the campaign trail and now what's clearly happened is that that one or two percent extra has come in and pushed it below the level where herd immunity has worked and and now you have a public health crisis and a lot of politicians are suddenly realizing that they've made some very very stupid remarks about 
public health policy and they want to be president one day, so they're going to have to... But on the other side, you've got someone like John Stewart saying this is kind of essentially California quinoa-munching hippies, right? Yes and no. Yeah, like, the current outbreak is in California, and and specifically around Los Angeles, is around Disneyland, and that makes sense, because if you look at Los Angeles, uh, particularly the wealthy parts of the city, vaccination rates in the, the state school system, great. Vaccination rates in the private school system are worse than in South Sudan. Um, they are terrible. There are schools where there are more kids unvaccinated than vaccinated. And it is those communities that are the source of this outbreak. But if you look nationally at vaccination rates in the US, the the states that um, consistently struggle to uh, to get people vaccinated and kids vaccinated are states, uh, the worst ones are Ohio, Colorado and West Virginia, which, and, and that's because they have rural communities with very poor healthcare access. And Traditionally, that's what the people who don't get vaccinations aren't people who choose not to. Um, that's the small minority. It's people who just don't have access to them in the first place. I do. Everything does come back to essentially yeah. go. The U.S. healthcare system is not as well set up yeah. as it might be. Well, um, the, the U.K. is no different as well. I mean, like uh, London. But we have. I mean, you know, well behind the rest of even the U.K. The north of Scotland is much less. Yeah, big um, than Ohio, uh, interesting. Like Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland are much better than England when it comes to to vaccinations, and it's poor inner city areas in England that mm. are the worst in the UK, particularly the poor boroughs of London, which are the poorest borough, you know constituencies mm. in the UK. Um, there are places where vaccination rate struggles to break eighty percent. Wow! Um, and that's if we're going to have an outbreak that's the kind of place where that will happen. And that's not because people are making a political choice. That's simply poor healthcare. Well, on that, again, I do like these. These always are slightly dispiriting. Let's end on a positive outcome, which is if you're listening to this, vaccinate everybody. Vaccinate your kids. Vaccinate yourself. <laughs> vaccinate early. Vaccinate often. Um, I'll say very thank you very much to Barbara and Ian. Housing, particularly uh, the housing in London, the South East, is a subject very close to this podcast's heart, um, as most of our contributors are young and houseless, with the exception of John Ellidge, who joins me now uh, to talk about how he's got a massive house, and Caroline Crampson, our web editor. I'm being unfair, John, as I often am with you. You're actually here because you went to the Generation Rent conference yesterday and heard about the plans, I'm presuming, to build us loads of houses and solve the housing shortage in the South East. Yeah, so I spent yesterday at this Generation Rent conference, and in all honesty, I came away incredibly depressed. Um, because the overwhelming feeling I got from the day is that while there are a lot of people who are very angry about how much they're paying in rent this has not yet turned into a recognition that maybe we should be building a bit more so explain Uh, to me why people are paying so much in in rent is it purely about the fact that there is a shortage of properties in places where people want to live is it an absolute shortage or is it a relative shortage in the sense that it'd be fine if you wanted to live in coventry or carlisle but not in, in in london um, I think there are a number of, of different factors that are fed into this. The, the big ones you identify is simply that, you know, a, there's more people trying to crowd into uh, the big employment centres like London or, or a lot of the university towns than they can actually contain. So people are getting squeezed in smaller and smaller spaces. All the laws of economics suggest that that's going to push up the price. Um, I think there is another trend which, uh, which is which is harder to pin down, but I think it's nonetheless there, which is a sort of capital hogging by by sort of the older generation 
Uh, so people who, who already had houses went out and bought other houses and built up this is a buy-to-let empire. Um, that's the sort of the, 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 the capital in the 21st century phenomenon identified by Thomas Piketty, I think. Well, you said this. There's a piece in The Guardian today. It's their long read by Linda Grant, who says who tells the story of how she bought a two-bedroom flat for £32,750 in 1985, and she sold it um, for 660000 in 2014. She actually mentions in the piece that she's bought a smaller flat for herself from this and she's bought another property, which she she wanted to buy a property for her nephew in London, but the, but it was already outstripped. So she's bought one in Brighton and then now she's about to buy to let. So it's exactly this phenomenon you speak of, is that people have accumulated a huge amount of capital and it's much easier to buy a house if you have a, a big deposit, basically. It, it's also... I mean, you've got to remember this is an entirely economically rational thing for that generation to have done. I mean, there's nowhere else that they could have put their money that would have got them anything like that kind of return. Uh, and, and you know, there was the... Whenever the last pensions crisis happened, when was that the early 90s? Mm. Um, but that, you know, suddenly people sort of lost faith in the pension system and thought, well, instead I'll buy this property that's going to go up year on year. Um, and that hasn't really sort of filtered through to people realising that they're basically robbing from their children not to put too fine a point on it their, their, their gain is our loss well that's the point that I find really interesting Caroline is the fact that electorally this has always been seen as people feel very prosperous when they own a, a house that they can see that it's accumulating value they feel that that's a really safe place to put their money much more certain than a pension scheme however I wonder if the tipping point comes when as happened that baby boomer generation's children are pushing 30 35 and they can't buy a house or some of them are, are still in the spare room still wanting their washing done this is something that's been you've started to see more and more i feel the real test of this is newspaper columnists once you see the kind of a cozy baby boomer saturday paper co- columnist saying and why does my 25 year old son still live with me hang on a second is this not something that we should be looking at that's when you start seeing that idea filtering into these people's minds that hang on a second when i was his age i'd already bought somewhere why can't he do the same although i do think there is also a certain i'm gonna say delusion that's probably too harsh a word for it a certain feeling that people have about property property that i worked very hard to get that and yes, I deserve it's that. The, the bootstraps thing, isn't it? Well, I pulled myself up, so why can't you do the same? But what's happened here is, well, as, as John identified, that it's not. This isn't happening on an individual level. This feels like a whole generation who benefited from certain circumstances who just sort of pulled the ladder up after them. What are you meant to do? Well, what are you meant to do, John? This is because so Labour has one. Um, ta- it has this idea of the mansion tax, which is uh, for properties over two million pounds. The astonishing thing about the mansion tax is that it pretty much only affects London, as far as I can see. It affects a tiny percentage of houses anyway, but very few of those houses are in mm. Arbroath or Cardiff, even. There's, yeah, no, there's. it will overwhelmingly be a tax on London, which is not necessarily a, a, a bad thing, because, you know, London properties have uh, London property owners have benefited from this massive boom. Why shouldn't they be required to pay back into the system? But I don't think it's really an adequate response. I think all the all, all the analysts I've, I talk to about this topic say we need to be building, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand, three hundred thousand homes a year to get us out of this. We're currently building about one hundred and forty thousand, and that's generally thought to be the level at which the big house builders are, are sort of confident. They're comfortable with building that and thinking they're nice and profitable doing that. It's not clear that there's anything we can do to kind of gene them up to get them to build another 100,000 a year. Well, one of the things I found interesting that you had on citymetric.com in the last couple of weeks was maps of how dense world cities are. 
And London, by that reckoning, was not as as densely populated in the centre as you might expect. It's London is incredibly uh, undense, if undense is a word. Um, and it's not. I mean, you, people sort of have a vision of places like New York or Hong Kong being incredibly densely populated. But the better comparator is actually places like Paris, where if you look at Paris, the standard height of buildings will be five or six stories. Mm. Whereas in London, you really don't have to go far from, from Trafalgar Square to find, you know, two bedroom semi-detached homes. Like even like two streets back from the South Bank in certain places, there are sort of old fashioned homes with gardens. And that's, yeah, you know, that's... Where I, I live just, I live, you can walk from my my tower block, I live in a 19 storey tower block, but you can walk from my tower block to the Thames in three minutes. And yet our tower block is one of only three in probably the square mile. Everything else is a Victorian terraced house. I think it was a really eye-opening for me going to Tokyo last year and seeing that, you know, you think the Canary Wharf is, is you know, in, in, all the, the new skyscrapers that have gone up in the city are, you know, that's, you think, oh, London's skyline has really changed. And then, you know, being in Tokyo is like being in a, in a forest of skyscrapers <laughs> and they go on and on and on. And the city itself goes on and on and on for 30 minutes on the train. You're just rattling through more and more and more. Um, I think it made me realise that actually this uh, this idea that London is bursting at the seams is is perhaps slightly not true. It's it's not remotely true. London is is incredibly uh, sort of open as these places go. Um, the, the the solution to this, I mean, from a particularly from a London perspective, um, we have two options really. We can either build out onto the green belt, or we can build up. Uh, and sort of, you know, get used to the idea that we're going to, you know, you're not going to have a home with a garden, you're going to be living in an apartment, in, a, in an apartment block. Um, I think the reason I came away from yesterday's event feeling a bit down about the whole situation is it rapidly became clear that while people want lower property prices, they don't really want to build up or out. They still want the sort of nice, intensively farmed agricultural land in Zone 5. Um, and they all want sort of little semi-detached homes with gardens. And I don't think we can have all these things at once. If you want cheaper housing, then we have to change what the city looks like in some way. Before we finish, just to mention, because I'm sure people will be interested in that point about the Greenbelt, I did write a piece about saying, you know, the Greenbelt is not this wonderful, like, you know, National Trust property, like, full of butterflies mm. and wildflowers. It is, like you say, agricultural land, it's golf clubs, it's pony clubs. It's My, my favourite example, which I keep banging on about to the point of tedium, is if you travel out on the A12 to the northeast of London... Um, between Ilford and Romford in a place where you're like a mile from the central line and you'll be a mile from Crossrail and you're in zone four of the, the London transport ticketing system, there is a potato farm. There is a potato farm which has a tube line and which we are expensively building another tube line for. But because it's greenbelt land, you can't touch it. It's absolutely crazy. Those potatoes will have a very easy commute into the city, though. So, uh, you know, let's look on the bright side. Sadly, we won't be able to afford the potatoes because we'll be paying so much for our housing. But never mind. <laughs> um, another optimistic end to a, a new statesman podcast. My house sentiment. is tiny, by the way. <laughs> I just feel the need to point this out. So is mine, John, and it's costing me way more. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you consider buying somewhere, you're a fool to yourself, Caroline. <laughs> Oh, I hate you. Um, well, we'll probably sort of stop the recording there before you have a fist fight. Uh, on that note, I will say thank you very much to John and Caroline. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.